A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This podcast explores themes of murder and rape. Listener discretion is advised. The words of Eileen Warnos are voiced by an actor. She killed seven men in cold blood. She did not kill in self-defense, but instead was motivated by hatred of men. There's no chance in stairs in keeping me alive or anything because I kill again. I have hate crawling through my system. Seven men murdered, only six bodies found. From 1989 to 1990, these men fell victim to sex worker Eileen Warnos as she hitchhiked along Florida's highways. Some were just giving a woman in need a ride. Others parted money for sex. But they all paid the price, as picking her up cost them their lives. Was Eileen's murder spree fueled by rage and anger after decades of abuse at the hands of men? What's the real story of the rock-loving biker chick dubbed the Damsel of Death? Over the course of six episodes, we will speak to detectives, witnesses, and experts to delve into the case of Eileen Warnos, tracking her notoriety as America's first female serial killer, and question if she too was a victim. We will also deep dive inside the mind of a monster, hearing Eileen's innermost thoughts and feelings from letters she sent to her best friend Dawn from death row. I'm criminal psychologist Dr. Michelle Ward, and this is Season 5 of Mind of a Monster, Eileen Warnos. Episode 3, Damsel of Death. What I had was a temporary mental breakdown of which 18 years of severe abuse I withheld inside too, too long. The burdens I thought I could weigh out with a master's degree and 17 years of courageously holding in would finally explode to weakness of the kill. In November 1989, 51-year-old electronics shop owner Richard Mallory solicits Eileen for sex work, picking her up along the highway in Volusia County, Florida. 
but he gets more than he bargains for and is murdered, shot four times through the chest. His decomposing body is rolled in a carpet and dumped in undergrowth, just off Interstate 75. He's not found for another two weeks. I speak to David Taylor, who was a lead detective on the case. The Mallory investigation did seem to go cold for a period of time. Um, tell me more about that. The Richard Mallory investigation, it did go cold for a while. And remember, that was the first in a series of homicides that she was involved in. Volusia County investigators, they were looking at several suspects in this case. They eventually identified a suspect in this case, and her name was Chastity Marcus. And eventually, uh, there was a warrant issued for Chastity Marcus. And if memory serves me correctly, she was actually arrested in another state, and she was brought back to the state of Florida. But as fate would have it, and it happens all the time, uh, they worked the case more and more and more. But eventually, the case didn't get better. It became less likely that she was, in fact, the one that had killed them. Because once in a while you get information, well, actually, a lot of times you get information that sounds good right out of the box. But then when you work that information, sometimes you learn that it's just not credible and it's not competent. So, yeah, the case did go cold. With Chastity no longer a suspect, the police struggle to work out who's killed Mallory and why. Meanwhile, Eileen and Tyria are hanging out in biker bars and getting by with cash ties making as a motel maid and the money Eileen is bringing in as a sex worker. Eileen believes their love can withstand anything. But when she confides in Tyria about the murder, it doesn't pan out as she hopes. Dear Don, I was obsessed over her. Sorry, but true. I was. I was madly in love with her. After Mallory's death, though, fear swept over her, and she became distant, I angrier. She merely hung on, so I wouldn't seek retaliation in my rage state. And sadly, she knew I'd lost my mind. Eileen's best friend, Dawn, tells me what she knew about Richard Mallory. Just he was a drinker, too. And he started out having a good time. He said, good, she's a hooker. So he said, we'll find a spot. So it was all in a good mood at first. Then I think he got drunk and took advantage of the situation. Well, he knocked her out. When you visited Eileen in custody, from what she told you, do you believe he tried to rape her? Oh, he did. Actually, because that's the one that was the worst for her because he put rubbing alcohol on her crotch after putting a pole up it. It's pretty sickening. I burned her so bad. It was a good thing and a bad thing. As bad as that, that burnt, that's the very thing that got her out of that jam because she got herself completely all untied. We reached out and got the gun to shoot him and got herself free. And what else did she say he tried to do to her? It was just wicked, she said. It was wicked. He did so many different things to her. And I think what upset her also is because she knew he was going to chop her up. Because he pretty much said that. You're going to die. I'll hold her down so I can rape her and rape her more. Um, that's, 
that devastated her. She very much saved her own life. As Dawn recalls, Eileen has always insisted that Mallory attacked her. But what isn't revealed at the time, and not ever mentioned in court, is that he has previously been convicted of a crime against a woman. I want to know what the police make of this. Now, it was discovered way after Eileen was charged that Richard Mallory had actually attacked a woman back in 1957. And according to this report, he pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity to a charge of assault with intent to rape. And then he was sentenced to four years in prison. But after a psychiatric evaluation, apparently he spent 10 years in a mental institution David, how come this wasn't found out earlier? The jury never heard this information, and it obviously could have supported Eileen's claims of self-defense. One of the things that happens in any criminal investigation, especially a homicide investigation, you have so much ground that is covered in such a short time frame. And you try your very best to uncover everything you possibly can about the victim. You, you want to know who your victim is, you know, more so than the family knows about them. Uh, in this particular case, it was one of those things where close to, well, during the trial, information came to light that Richard Mallory, in fact, had uh, a history. He had a violent history uh, back in his really younger days involving uh, sexual violence. Uh, that information was, in fact, uh, turned over to uh, the prosecution team. And that information was, in fact, shared with, through the rules of discovery, uh, with her counsel. And, uh, of course, now when you're in the middle of trial, what do you want to do? If you're the attorneys on her side, you want the jury to hear this. Uh, but the judge, uh, the judge is the gatekeeper of the evidence, and the judge will make a determination, yay or nay, if the jury can hear that evidence. Is it relevant? Is it material? Uh, is it trustworthy? Uh, is it reliable? In this particular case, the judge ruled that the jury would not hear the evidence of his prior uh, sexual violence uh, events that occurred in another state. And um, you know, once the judge ruled, you know, that was that was it. Uh, the jury did not get to hear it. So that information did come at the later stage of the investigation, but it was, in fact, uh, vetted uh, through the judicial process. So then when was it that the details of his previous charge were uncovered? Was it during the trial or was it before the trial? I, I think it was just prior to the trial. I don't remember the exact date. Uh, I actually have a copy of the entire report. I've read it. The report that I have paints a picture that he did engage in what would appear to be some violent sexual acts. He has a propensity for violence. And Eileen was adamant that Mallory was shot in self-defense. What do you think the likelihood of that was, given his past? You know, what you just asked, that's the million-dollar question. So many times myself, uh, Brian, and many others have had this conversation. What if? What if the jury would have heard all the information involving his past, these violent sexual episodes from the other state? Would that have impacted the jury? You know, would they have said, yeah, there's a possibility, you know, that what you're saying, Aileen, you know, really did happen, just like you said. So, you know, we'll never know. You know, we'll, I know the jury in this particular case, when it all was said and done, wasn't out very long. Uh, but then again, the jury never had the benefit of hearing 
uh, about Richard Mallory's background, his past. Would that have made a difference? I would have to say it is possible. Eileen is set to take her next victim just six months later, in May 1990. Brian Jarvis and David Taylor worked together on the Warnos case. Brian, do you believe her need to kill escalates after Mallory's death? So you can see how her psychology changed after she had that hiatus. In fact, if you look at the FBI's definition of a serial killer back then, what it said was a person that kills three or more individuals in separate incidents with a brief cooling off period. Well, after she killed Richard Mallory, what happened? There was a brief cooling off period for six months. And then she started to kill quicker, faster, with more anger. Wow. Yeah, and then it, then it ramps up after that. Correct. I mean, if you look at Richard Mallory's, his case is different from every other case. He was the first victim. His case is different. He was only shot four times. Mm -hmm. But what we saw after this was a progression of hate, a progression of anger building up in her. The second victim was shot six times. The third victim was shot nine times where she emptied out the gun. And not only that, but the cases were now starting to compress in time. While there was a six-month gap between her first victim and her second, now there's only weeks between the victims. And David, what Brian says interests me because it does feel as though the Mallory murder is different to all the rest, which we'll find out about later. And then, as you mentioned earlier, he does have a history of sexual violence. So could it be that Eileen was about to kill these other men out of rage for what Mallory allegedly did to her or what men historically have done to her, like the boys at school, her grandpa, the guy who raped and got her pregnant? Maybe Mallory layered in with all of these other men of her past could have been like the trigger that makes her finally explode and kill more people. You know, it's uh, I've been asked that same question uh, many times as I've traveled the country and we've you know discussed this case. You know, who in the world was she really killing? Was she killing Richard Mallory Orber? Was she killing her grandfather? Uh, to be very frank, I don't know uh, because when you look at Aileen Warnos, she was so diverse. She was so traveled across the country. She was a survivor. Uh, I've got to believe that other people have been raised in maybe parallel environments such as her, but they didn't become serial killers. I really believe that she, you know, she has made this deliberate, conscious, willful decision to kill. Why she killed each one of these men, you know, that's between her and her maker. Um, I have a gut feeling, you know, but um, that's just me, you know, and, 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 and the reason why I kind of guard that, because in police work, homicide detectives, sometimes we get a little focused too narrowly, uh, tunnel vision, and, uh, you know, we see things are kind of jaded. but. Why did she kill these guys? I have to believe she was that evil. Dear Don, they gave me hatred, I gave it back. The master behind the scenes was none other than Lucifer himself. He led the men to do the things they did against me, and in turn, 
coax me to give it back. Welcome to 1990, Eileen's year of bloodshed. Six months after Richard Mallory is murdered, she takes the life of victim number two, 43-year-old construction worker David Spears. On June 1st, his naked body is found on the side of the highway in Citrus County, Florida. He's been shot, not once, but six times through the chest. Just a few weeks before this gruesome discovery, retired Marion County Chief of Police Brian Jarvis is called to the scene of an abandoned vehicle. It belongs to David Spears. Brian and his colleague David Taylor are not yet dealing with the Mallory homicide. Another police agency is overseeing that crime scene in Volusia County, a good two or so hours away by car. I want to know if he had any early intel that the cases could be linked. At the time that this happened, uh, we really weren't aware of the Volusia County case uh, as far as any details or specifics or what had happened. All we knew was that David Spears had been reported missing. So we got a call from our patrol division one day and the sergeant said, we're out with the vehicle. And when we ran the VIN number, because the license plate was missing, it came back to a missing person. And he said, what would you like us to do? And I said, secure the scene and we'll be right up there. So we went up with a, a team of detectives. Where were you? And did anything stand out to you once you arrived on the scene? It was on I-75, an interstate in Florida. And the license plate and some of the personal property was tossed off the side over the edge of the interstate. And we had located that. So we found some of those items there. We would later learn that there were other items missing from the truck, such as a uh, statue of a Black Panther about 10 inches tall. And during the investigation, it was found that he had purchased that for his wife, even though they were separated at the time, they were thinking of getting back together. So he had purchased that for her birthday and he was on his way to see her on her birthday, and that was one of the items that was taken, was that panther. Wow. That's sad. It is. So if David Spears is driving to see his wife hoping to rekindle their marriage, is it even likely that he was looking for a sex worker, or was he just helping someone he thought was a hitchhiker? He's on his way after work to meet his wife to celebrate her birthday. Yeah. Is he going to stop and pick up a prostitute on the way? Even though the area he was found in was an area used for prostitution, doesn't mean that he picked her up for that. It means that maybe Aileen knew it existed, knew where she could dump the body. You know, there's a lot of speculation there, but I, I, I really put a lot of emphasis on the victimology of the, the victims themselves and what they were doing to look at the possibilities that were there. Yeah, doesn't make sense. So you have a vehicle and then find a body. What next? Once they found his body, uh, it was tied back into the truck that we had earlier found. So now there was a connection there, and we had found that he had been shot six times, I believe, with a 22 caliber weapon. But because we had recovered his vehicle, we were notified when the body was found. And then it wasn't too long after that that Charles Karskadden went missing. That was the third victim. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, it's Janice from Warner Brothers Discovery. If you're looking for a little extra peace of mind, you might want to check out Simply Safe. Simply Safe was kind enough to send me a home protection system to try out, and I couldn't believe how easy it was to set up. Not only that, I'm kind of a gear nerd, and I was really impressed by how clear the camera was. I also love the smart lock keyless entry because there are a lot of things to remember each day, and my keys aren't always on that list, okay? Not only that, Simply Safe offers a 60-day money-back guarantee, and U.S. News & World Report awarded them the best home security systems of 2024. Simply Safe has given me and many of our listeners real peace of mind, and I want you to have that too. Right now, get 20% off any new Simply Safe system with fast protect monitoring at simplysafe.com/mindofamonster. There's no safe like Simply Safe. Hey, it's Janice from Warner Brothers Discovery. Have you ever heard the expression, perfect is the enemy of good? I think about that a lot, especially when it comes to my body and health, because perfect does not exist. It's a total trap. Noom isn't into this perfection thing either. Its unique approach is tailored to each person's psychology and biology. From coaching to recipes, Noom's app provides personalized information to help you on your journey, no one else's journey. I also think it's great that Noom doesn't restrict what you can eat, and it doesn't shame you for treating yourself. And treat yourself, you should. What's more, Noom's approach is grounded in science. They've even published more than 30 peer-reviewed scientific articles about how they work. To date, Noom has helped more than 5.2 million people lose weight by helping them build new habits for a healthier lifestyle. So why not give it a try? Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first-ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Just days after the discovery of David Spears, the naked body of 40-year-old Charles Karskadden is found 50 miles away in Pasco County along Interstate 75. The truck driver and part-time rodeo bull rider is now so badly decomposed that the medical examiners are unable to obtain fingerprints. Even with three dead bodies and vehicles spread across the vast interstates, the police still have no idea that a serial killer is at large. 
he was traveling from St. Louis back to Tampa. On the way there, he had run into Aileen and she had killed Mr. Korsgaden and taken his vehicle. A few days later, his vehicle was located again on I-75 in Marion County. His body is recovered. He had been shot nine times. And what we would learn later on was that the weapon she was using was a nine-shot revolver, which tells us now she emptied out the gun on him. Emptied the gun. Wow. And of course, you have three murders all linked, but with the different agencies working on each case, the puzzle isn't being put together yet. No, we don't know that. We have the 22 connection, but unless we had a ballistics match, that really could have been two separate guns. And unfortunately, one of the problems we had at the time was that the, uh, the labs that were being used to test ballistics, there were several of them set up around the state. And each agency had used a different lab, and there was no communication there to tell us that they were connected. So it wasn't until later on that we would find out that those ballistics had a match. So with agencies unaware that the cases are linked, Eileen goes on to kill even more men and steal more vehicles. I understand that Tyria, her girlfriend, would drive around with her in the victim's cars. Yeah, typically what we found was that when the men were killed, their bodies were dumped in isolated areas. It was a miracle that some of them were found. And after she killed them, she would take their vehicles. And her and Tyree would drive around just like it was their car. So there was a very close correlation to the amount of time that they had the vehicles to when the bodies were actually recovered. And again, it was a miracle that some of them were recovered, considering the way they were hidden. Eileen has now taken the lives of three men. And with each murder, we're seeing an escalation in the killings. This is common with serial killers, especially as they become emboldened by not being caught. But as millions of Americans celebrate a day of independence, July 4th, 1990 marks the day when Eileen will start to lose hers. Eileen and her lover, Tyria, misjudge a bend in the road and crash through barbed wire into a forest near Orange Springs in Florida. But the wrecked 1988 silver Pontiac Sunbird doesn't belong to them or any of the three men Eileen's already murdered. It's owned by her fourth victim. Dear Dawn, after we rolled and the car landed on all fours, the engine was still running. Although the car was smashed, I took the tag off and told Ty, I don't know how far it will take us, but just as long as we get away from this area where we wrecked would be great, because a house nearby saw what happened. My name is Rhonda, and I'm a witness in the Eileen Warnos case. I made the phone call that brought the detectives out to the Orange Springs area that led to her arrest. It's late afternoon, and Rhonda's sitting on her front porch having a beer. It's peaceful and isolated here, a quiet country road surrounded by forest and the sound of birdsong. But as Rhonda tells me, 
the tranquility is short-lived. When they uh, wrecked their car on the corner, uh, we heard them coming. As a matter of fact, they went by one time, went back, found out it was a dead-end road or whatever, or buried their body, whatever they did. <laughs> and they came back, and, and uh, we heard the screeching and uh, the sound of the crash. So she kind of crashed through the fence and landed there, you know, about 10 feet into the uh, neighbor's property. It happens a lot there on that curb. And I'm used to jump out and help people. Um, pull their car out or flip their car back over. So where you live, this happens quite often. It's not out of the ordinary. So what do you do when you hear the crash? Well, like I had always done, go out there and see if we can give them all a hand. Uh, and most people, uh, they're, they're uh, appreciative of what we do, but these these gals, they uh, they were very unfriendly. They just wanted to uh, get out of there and get going. They didn't want they didn't want our help. Uh, I would have gave them help, something to drink, you know, fix their cuts and scrapes for them. But they wanted nothing to do with us. My kids walked right up to them and would try to talk to them, see if they needed help, because Eileen had blood. Uh, dripping through her shirt and down her arm. Wow, so your kids saw Eileen and Tyria too. Did they say anything to them? What were they like? My oldest daughter talked to the uh, the other girl, Irene or whatever her name was, asked her, can she help? She smiled at her, said, no, that's okay, you know, honey. Or, and uh, Eileen yelled back at her and said, I told you not to talk to anybody. They didn't want to talk to us. I read that once it crashed through the fence, they actually tried to run away from the scene. Why did they come back? They didn't come back until uh, they seen us go over there and look at that that uh, car, see how bad it was damaged. And they seen us poking around over there by that car and they come running back and told us to get away from the car. And they jumped in it. They just wanted to get out, you know, get away like they was running away or running from something or whatever they were doing. Uh, they were not friendly at all not normal behavior when you just had a car crash. So they're trying to drive off, even though the vehicle is totally wrecked, right? And even in as bad a shape it was in, I mean, the radiator was leaking real bad. They managed to get it out and away they went. They took off and headed towards town. I hear that they only made it up to the gas station before it started overheating and they had to get water. But what Rhonda doesn't know is that the woman she's tried to help is a serial killer who has just stolen and wrecked the car of her fourth victim. Dear Don, after the wreck, I said, get in the bushes, man, because I knew some cars were coming. Ty said, what the fuck is the deal? I said, I got to tell you something. I killed somebody. She said, what? Are you crazy? I said, I killed somebody, man. This car is somebody's I killed. Eileen and Tyria attempt to drive away, but don't make it far. The damaged tires finally blow out and the car is abandoned. The car made it about three more miles when the right front tire blew out. We scurried out, not even wiping prints. I was losing a lot of blood from my hand and right arm all cut up, ready to pass out. I said, grab the big red beer cooler, sunglasses, baseball caps, and let's go. The car stayed on the side of the road, smashed to hell. Retired officer Brian Jarvis is one of the first on the scene. 
it had been called in initially as a motor vehicle accident. And the caller had seen two girls leaving the car. And they were on their way to go see the fireworks in Daytona Beach. And what had happened was they saw a sign indicating there was an Indian reservation up on one of our side streets. So they detoured maybe seven miles. They were upset because now they're going to be late for the fireworks. And Tyree is driving the car. And when she comes out of the area, she misses a turn, goes off the road, strikes a tree. The side of the car gets damaged. And the car stalls. About this time, another vehicle pulls up and sees that they had an accident, and they stop to offer them help. But of course, these girls don't want help from anybody. They, they want to stay as far away from people as they can. The driver's seat has been left in the forwardmost position, indicating the person driving is petite. And with the license plate ripped off, the VIN number is all police have to go by. Brian's colleague, David Taylor, recalls the moment police realize this car crash could be far more sinister. This wasn't your typical case. Uh, you have a car crash, females walking away from the car. Uh, the VIN number of that vehicle is ran through the computer. It is reported uh, to belong to a guy that's now missing and believed to be endangered. So who is this guy? Where is he? He is 65-year-old Peter Sims, retired. He and his wife, Ursula, devote their time to a Christian outreach missionary program. Much of Peter's day is spent helping those in need and offering them guidance in finding God. Peter Sims left Jupiter, Florida, and he was on the way to go to New Jersey, but he never made it. Hopefully, we'll find some new evidence, uh, possibly the body. Uh, we're just extended our search to about another square mile that we're trying to look into. There was an individual there that saw two girls leaving this car. And that individual was able to give us a uh, description of who they were. We found his wrecked car in the Ocala National Forest. And this would be really our first link into what was going on. We searched for Peter Sims. We couldn't find his body. And to this day, his body's never been found. Police believe Peter Sims was simply picking up Eileen to help a woman in need. David and Kathy are Peter Sims' nephew and niece, and they both spoke to the Mind of a Monster documentary team in 2020. My Uncle Pete was a very kind man. He was one of the kindest men I ever met. He'd do anything for anybody. He told me he liked to pick up hitchhikers. He says, I like to talk to him about the Lord, about God. <laughs> you have a captive audience, I guess, you know? So I said, Uncle Pete, you're still, I said, it's just far too dangerous to do that, you know? And he looked at me, he said, Dave, he says, if I get taken out or hurt or anything, he says, at least I'll be doing the Lord's work. He was the most gentlest soul you'd ever want him. He was a giver. He loved God. He loved the Lord. He had a bunch of Bibles in the back of his truck. He was going to go to the uh, camp meeting after Memorial Day when Aunt Rose called. She says, where's Uncle Pete? I said, what do you mean, where's Uncle Pete? And she says, well, he never showed up. Peter and his wife, Ursula, are one of 250 volunteers at this camp meeting run out of Jupiter, Florida, by Peter's friend, Bill Lowry, the organizer of the Christian ministry. What do you remember about the day 
Peter went missing. From the beginning, could you tell me about how that day unfolded up until the point when he left the camp? He was going north, and he was leaving out and said goodbye through the camp. You know, we always did the—anytime anybody went out, we got a prayer circle and got around him and prayed over him and blessed him and sent him off, you know. And and, um, and Ursula was staying with us, and he took off. And it's a big camp. How long was it before people realized that Peter hadn't called to say he had arrived? Because that's a normal thing to do, right? Oh, yeah, like the, yeah, like the second day after, you know, giving him enough time to drive through and call back. You know, back in those days, you didn't have handhelds. You know, we're living at a camp, and uh, usually there were people in the vicinity, the area where we had the big tent and our whole camp set up that would let us use their phones and we could take phone calls. Whoever our little communication center was, you know, We were looking for a phone call from him and said, no, we haven't heard nothing. We haven't heard nothing. Ursula was still there. She must have been a terrible mess. She's a German, you know. The German are very, next to the British, they're probably about as stoic as you can get, you know. So she was like, you know, very strong, very strong woman, you know. And believing the best, you know. He's maybe somebody's taking him hot. And I'll tell you, we all knew one thing, that if anybody had grabbed Pete, they got sermonized, they got preached to, and they got loved because he was just a loving, kind man, and he witnessed to everybody. You know, he was really turned on to the Lord. Ursula was mothering him. You know, she mothered everybody. And Pete kind of fathered everybody. You know, he had like a father's heart, you know. I remember that uh, somebody had come and said Ursula was upset she hadn't heard from Pete that he was supposed to went on several days, I think. And, you know, we all got real serious in praying for Pete. What has happened to Pete? More than 200 miles away, Brian Jarvis is on duty. Nobody has heard from Peter Sims in days. Brian soon realizes this could be a murder case. We did everything we could to try and locate his body. We didn't know where it would be. We had not a clue. We didn't know the car had been stolen, driven by other people. We had very, very little information on it. So we searched a huge area of the Ocala National Forest. We searched on foot. We searched on ATVs. We searched on horseback, by helicopter. We searched as hard as we could to try and find him, using canines to try and locate him. We could not find Peterson's body, and I don't know how long the search lasted, but it was quite a while. Wow. And once the car was found, did that give you any clues? When we bring the car in to process it, it's got that damage on the passenger side. Inside the passenger door was a bloody palm print. When the window shattered, it cut Aileen, and she had gotten some blood on her hand. When she got out of the car, she pushed the door with her palm and left that palm print there. So not only do you have the palm print, but you have blood too. That must have been useful forensic evidence. And I believe that was only one of only two vehicles we had any evidence out of forensic evidence that we could use. Now, at that time, we didn't have anything to match it to. There was no palm print database or anything, but we saved it. Peter's nephew, David Sims. 
when you get the news, you, you, your stomach just drops out. It's just a terrible feeling. It's just something you don't want to wish on anybody. But among the heartache, there is hope that the killer can be caught because for the first time, there are witnesses like Rhonda and her neighbors. David Taylor. With Peter Sims, that was a huge turning point in this investigation. And looking back, it was crucial. Beth Smith, she was a forensic artist at the sheriff's office. Thank goodness, had the foresight to involve the services of our forensic artists. Why it was still fresh in the witness's mind to have composites, uh, drawings generated. They meant everything in this case. My name is Beth Smith and I am a fine artist and I for a number of years was a forensic artist for the Marion County Sheriff's Office. So Beth, how did you come to be involved in this notorious case? I was called out by the lead detectives to Orange Springs, Florida to meet with some witnesses that had encountered a couple people that they had met on the road in the proximity of the car that was involved in the accident. They came across what turned out to be Eileen and uh, her girlfriend, Tyria Moore. I understand that you were called out on the day the accident happened. Did the witnesses have a good recollection of what the two women looked like? It's very important when you do interview a witness for a composite drawing that you do it as soon as possible. The longer you wait, the more foggy the memory becomes. We got there quickly and they had such good recall. I was able to come up with two, two drawings of Tyria and Eileen. So how did the witnesses describe them? They described Eileen as being taller than Tyria. She, she was the shorter, heavier set one. They, they were adamant about Tyria's face being more round, more full, fuller cheeks, a, a more fuller uh, chin area. Eileen, she was the more aggressive out of the two. Tyria was more su more subdued, more kind of following along with whatever Eileen said. It was clear to them that Eileen was definitely uh, the one taking charge, doing the most talking. And her facial features, she had thinner lips and bad teeth. Eileen had dirty blonde, longer dirty blonde hair, and Tyria had more brownish hair that was tucked up under a ball cap that she had pulled down uh, quite a bit uh, toward her face. And as a woman, what was the realization like that you could be sketching at least one female serial killer? This was the first time that I had ever drawn women that were possibly suspects in any kind of major crimes. Uh, all of my composite drawings up to that point were all male that were involved in any kind of major crimes or violent crimes. So yeah, it was, it was very unusual and a big wow factor. This is the aha moment. Police now realize they may be hunting down a female serial killer. 
It's early morning, July 30th, 1990, less than a month after Peter Sims vanishes. Troy Burris is married and working for a sausage company. He leaves the factory as normal to make deliveries, but the 50-year-old never returns. His manager calls businesses he was meant to visit, and Troy's wife reports him missing. But at 4 a.m. the following morning, police find his truck on State Road 19, 20 miles east of Ocala. It's unlocked and the keys are missing. So is a body. Just days later, Brian Jarvis gets the dreaded call. The first body that I came into contact with was Troy Burris. I can remember getting a call and uh, that the body had been found out in the Ocala National Forest. And as I'm driving out there, uh, it was on a Saturday or Sunday. I wasn't working at the time, but I was on call. And I can remember driving out there saying, I hope I can find the location. I mean, it was, it was so obscure, so out of the way. And I'm driving, 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 and it seemed like hours, but it really was probably only 45 minutes. <laughs> but it felt like your whole life. It, it did, because you're driving through miles and miles of nothing but trees. And uh, when I got to the area, there were a couple of patrol cars that were sitting out by the road, so I knew where it was, and I was able to go in there and uh, find Troy Burris's body. How was that? It was uniquely odd because it was hidden so well. The area that his body was in was off what we call a fire lane. And in the forest, we have fire lanes that run through the forest to allow fire apparatus to enter if there's a huge forest fire. I'm going to guess that this fire lane hadn't been used in two years. But his body was down there. And there were a couple of people that came up from the Space Coast, the Merritt Island area of Florida. And they wanted to go to Lake George in, a, in the Marion County area. But it was so crowded, they said, well, let's just find a place we can have our, our little picnic. They drove about, I don't know, maybe three miles away from Lake George. And they see this fire lane. They said, it looks kind of quiet. They drove in about a half mile. They set up their picnic and they notice something off into the weeds, something that wasn't green. And they go over and look, and it was blue jeans. And there was a badly decomposing body with these blue jeans. And that was how we found Troy Burris. How scary for the picnickers. It was. And, and you know, in each instance, it wasn't us finding the bodies. It was civilians finding the bodies. And uh, even, you know, with, with uh, Richard Mallory, the first victim... Uh, he was in an area where a lot of people dumped illegal scrap. It was like kind of like an illegal dumping ground. And a couple of people went up there with their metal detectors trying to find some copper or metal they can sell. And they see this hand sticking out from under this red carpet. And what's that going to do to you? What are you? What are you thinking there? So, you know, it was civilians that were finding the bodies and reporting it to us. And some of these bodies never should have been found. They were that, that well hidden. It makes you wonder if there were more. Yeah. Troy Burris has been shot with a 22 caliber pistol, this time through the back and chest. The heat and humidity has hastened decomposition. It takes his wife to identify him by his wedding ring. As police go through unsolved homicide bulletins sent out by the Florida Department of Law Enforcement, they notice similarities between this kill and that of David Spears. Both have that 22 caliber connection. Lead investigators on the cases meet to compare notes and noticed even more consistencies. 
vehicles are abandoned and the driver's seat pulled into the forward-most position. And witnesses have seen two women flee from Peter Sims' stolen car. Could this actually be the work of a female serial killer? Next time on Mind of a Monster, while police race against time to identify the two women from the composite sketch, Eileen wastes no time finding victim number six. Mind of a Monster, Eileen Warnos is produced by Arrow Media for ID. The executive producer for ID is Jessica Lowther. Arrow Media's producer is Harriet Mortar. Editor is Millie Tapner. Audio engineering is by Mahoney Audio Post. Our line producer is Philippa Whittle. Our production manager is Alexandra Kelly. Our junior production manager is Jody Tanner Wild. Our production coordinator is Shannon Tunicliffe. Our archive producer is Katia Lom. And our assistant producer is Isabel Wilson. Our edit producer is Finn Bunting. Aero Media series producer is Gabrielle Nash. And executive producer is Stuart Pender. Eileen Warnos is played by Vicki Thorne. I'm your host, Dr. Michelle Ward. You can follow our show wherever you get your podcasts, and we'd love it if you could take a second to leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.